The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Romans 3, beginning at verse 9, a passage that really tells us about the heart of our salvation. Paul is writing, picking up his argument at Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. This is God's holy word. I think I actually have mentioned once some years ago an experience that's very memorable to me. It happened more than 20 years ago in the state of Maryland, not long before we left there to come here. I was visiting, I stress visiting, not there because I was called to be there, but a son of mine was, a crowded Maryland traffic court. It was a few miles over the speed limit, as a matter of fact, that he was accused of. And we gathered there with about three or four dozen people, 
in the Baltimore County traffic court. It was better than reality TV. I remember being very entertained as I watched what went on. People were called one after another before the judge at his bench. He had a computer terminal, and I didn't at first know what that was for. I should have guessed. As he asked one man, well, have you had any prior offenses? Oh, no, judge. Well, uh, what about, mm -mm 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 -mm," you know, three or four of them that were right there on the computer screen under his name? Oh, quietly under his breath, he said, I didn't know you knew about those. Then came the man, the great classic, who said, well, judge, it was my brother's truck, and I didn't know his speedometer registered 20 miles too low. Excuses, excuses, excuses. I heard them all that day. As my son was wondering when he would be called, I whispered to him, said, son, please take my advice. Just tell the judge this. Your Honor, I am guilty as charged. Just say that. For once my son, well, he takes my advice more than once, but (laughs) for once he took my advice and he said, Your Honor, I am guilty as charged. And he received more mercy from the court than anybody else because he didn't come with a lame excuse. Today we face a text in which God, the Most High Judge, has every human being, at least in an imaginary construction, before his great bench of eternal justice. And that will not be an imaginary situation at the last day of earth. And Paul imagines it here. Every man and woman, Jew and Gentile, people from all time gathered, and he says, what will be, will be happening then? He charts it here in verses 19 and 20. Every mouth will be stopped as the whole world is held accountable before God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. In other words, every person from history will be there as a lawbreaker and will be guilty. And there will be no loophole, no excuse, no defense attorney at a human level who can possibly grant you what you might need to escape from that verdict. Now, I've spoken two previous weeks about what we call a Reformed viewpoint in Christianity. Once again, there are many genuine believers in Christ. We should embrace them in real fellowship if they know Jesus as Lord, who don't necessarily adopt what we would call the Reformed or some call it Calvinistic viewpoint towards an understanding of the Scripture. We began two weeks ago looking at God's absolute sovereignty, We looked last time at the issue of the supreme authority of Scripture. Now we come to that which which really you might say where the rubber meets the road, to the biblical concept of God's sovereignty as it is applied in salvation in particular. And this is where we tend to part ways with some folks. They will say, yes, God is sovereign. Oh, except when it gets down to what I need to do. Remember the little boy this past week, uh, by the way, uh, on TV, did you see the film of the little boy, six or seven years old, I guess it was in Italy, when the Pope was giving a speech, and this boy got on the stage, and, and no bishop with candy in his hand or anything else could lure this boy away from the Pope until he 
he got on the Pope's big throne chair as the Pope was speaking. I thought, little boy, you're exactly like every human being. Now, the Pope's not God, of course, but, but we want to get on the throne. When the authority is not allowing it, we want the throne, and that little boy wasn't going to leave no matter what, just like us. We decide we'll rule instead of God. And the Scripture teaches us that the Bible's picture is of man helpless in his sin unless there is an intervening act done by the triune God. God and only God can break that courtroom deadlock in which we stand charged as guilty. I don't fear any exaggeration here, really, today in telling you that I would say Romans 3, 9 through 26 is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Here is the message of salvation, like a manifesto, like a Magna Carta, like a U.S. Constitution. This is the message. Man's problem and God's answer. It's all here. We're not going to look at all the details today, but I hope you can see the big picture of what's here. A theologian named Benjamin Warfield wrote a century ago and said the Calvinist or Reformed Christian is one who does not flinch to behold the sight in Scripture of the majesty of God soaring above all of human life. And Warfield said, every Reformed thinker sees God in his undeniable glory and, uh, and looks upon him with adoring wonder, and yet we observe man the creature in his total unworthiness, but we mark that this high, holy God still elects and calls and justifies helpless sinners. All that is to tell us there's no more wonderful word than the word grace. Grace means unmerited favor shown to people who do not deserve it at all. It's a free gift to the very people who deserve the opposite of that gift. So today I have just two major divisions to put before you here, showing you the very natural way this text breaks down, verses 9 through 20, with a crisis problem for all humanity, including every one of you, and verses 21 to 26 with a marvelous solution authored not by us, but by God himself. The first of the main points is this. The whole human race is condemned before God and without a defense. Now, that is the culmination of an argument Paul began in Romans 1.18. And if you wish to follow it all, it would be worth your reading, starting in 1.18 on through. I will tell you, it's not the most pleasant reading in the world because it's an indictment drawn up against every human being who know the things of God, turn away from them, worship other things. We actually looked at a part of that text in chapter 1 uh, about a month or so ago on a different subject. It's, it's stripping the ground out from under the feet of any basic self-confidence in which we would stand as human beings and say, I'm the master of my circumstances. Paul started out in 118 saying, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he goes on from there. In verse 9 of our text, he says, Jew and Gentile are alike in this. We are under sin, controlled by it. He quotes a whole 
string of, of texts from the Old Testament there in verses 11 through 18. You can see how the text is indented in your column indicating quotations from the Old Testament. At places like the 14th Psalm, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside and so on. He's summarizing the case against human sin and the indictments to me are felt like machine gun fire. One piece of hot lead after another ripping through me saying, none, no one, not one, all. The indictments are inescapable. We're all in a state by nature where we treat God as an enemy, not a friend. We rebel against him. We want to sit on his throne like that little boy on the Pope's chair. We, we, we think about this righteousness that God looks for, being right with God, being in conformity with his holy being. We don't have it. Reformed thinkers like to talk about a term, you've heard it perhaps, called total depravity. I prefer the term radical depravity. But it never means we are absolutely as bad as we might possibly be. When we say total, we mean in every part of our being and our mind and our actions, every one of us is affected by this sin nature. Nobody, as far as I know, is as bad as they might. You think of the worst person. I suppose the easy name jumps to mind, Adolf Hitler, the man responsible for killing millions of people. It seemed like he hated just about everybody. Well, I suppose Adolf Hitler probably had a little shred of kindness towards his mother or somebody at some point in his life. We would say this when we think about radical depravity and what is described here. If sin is scarlet red, what the text is saying is all of our lives, all of our minds, all of our expressions and actions are at least pale pink. And in some places, of course, there's splashes of good dark red. Everything we do is tinged and tainted by sin. That's the biblical assessment. You can't escape it. This is one of the most dramatic summaries of it, but it's many other places as well. Now, there are people who would claim Christian faith who would utterly reject this. They say, I, oh, what kind of a gloomy preacher are you? I don't accept that. Human beings are basically good. And that's their entire premise. There are preachers in pulpits who would preach. All we have to do is accentuate the goodness that's in all people, and, and that's the important thing. Don't talk about sin. Well, our text would even anticipate the existence of such people as it says, no one understands. People are debased in their thinking, and they don't even understand what they're not seeing, what they're not understanding or, or thinking. And they turn to God, and they say, well, God, you know, I'm really a fairly good guy. I know I messed up lots of places, but goodness, uh, I got through school, and, and I know how the teachers graded, and, you know, they compared me to the rest of the class, and there were rare times when I got an A, maybe, but I at least got C pluses, and, and as I think about my life, God, isn't it a C plus life at least? And the answer of Romans 3 is, no way. The grading doesn't come on a curve. There are no C plus lives. In terms of the righteousness of God, you've fallen short. 
Paul in Ephesians 2 enforces this even stronger when he says we are actually dead in our trespasses and our sins. Spiritually speaking, we're the walking dead. That's how we come into that world, this world. And if you don't have this understanding, you're not where God is in his understanding of yourself. The whole human race is really condemned before God without any defense. But I move on quickly. And you know, I think there, there's no way you can write into the margin of a Bible long silence and drum roll. But if you could do that, you should do it right before Romans 3.21. And the drum roll consists of one teensy, tiny word. We call it a conjunction. But. All that that we've just said, but. Now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God looks upon that situation, but he decides to do something else about it. The righteousness of God comes through, it says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And it goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift. Here is a 180 degree turnaround from that terrible sentence, that heavy duty condemnation that is announced in the first part of Romans 3. I don't know of any place in the Bible where things change direction more dramatically in the space of the, between a period and the beginning of the next sentence as between Romans 3.20 and Romans 3.21. I've got three sub points for you to see this grace of God working here under the Work of God authoring salvation. First of all, the source of salvation is God's free and sovereign grace here. Romans 3 says that all initiative for bringing forth a way of salvation is from God. I have actually heard preached on the radio and other places sometimes people saying, presenting the gospel of the cross and saying, God has come halfway. Now you just come halfway and meet him. I would sure like to know where that is found in any Bible. Not this one. I don't know what version you've bought, but it's not in this one. Instead, we have a statement like what Jonah said in Jonah 2, 9. You remember Jonah's predicament, of course. He was in the heart of the sea, swallowed by a great creature. He, as a man, was just as absolutely low as a person could go, and how in the world do I escape now? I'm dead. I'm going to die in the next minutes. And the statement that is recorded, whether it was the thought that was in Jonah's mind, we would assume that he prayed in the belly of that creature, because it's recorded in Jonah 2.9, is an epic statement. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah knew, I'm not going to get out of this. Not by my devices, not by anything I can do. Salvation will come if it comes from the Lord. Now we look at what Paul has written here. And we say, how dead does a dead soul have to be before we will recognize that salvation is of the Lord? that we are not going to somehow figure out a way to resurrect ourselves. 
or give ourselves a new birth or a new life. When we look at Scripture and see what God has done in bringing forth His grace as Romans 3.21 and following announce it, what we see is that the Lord didn't just roll out a grand plan, we sometimes call it the plan of salvation, and then kind of roll the dice and say, all right, I've got this great plan, I've gone to all this trouble to send my son to die and be raised again gloriously. I sure hope, oh, I hope against hope, here's God, that somebody, somewhere, somehow is going to grab a hold of this in their you know, maybe they're a little smarter than all the rest of the people, and they'll take hold of this plan of salvation and call it their own. I see our government doing this right now. You knew I had to get the health care plan in somewhere. Here we've got this wonderful plan. Our government has a wonderful plan for your life, folks. Right now, you can't get on the computer site to take hold of it or be part of it, But what they're telling us is that even when the computer site works so that people can get on it, not very many are doing it. And they're actually a little bit astounded. They don't want to make too much of this right now, but you'll be reading more about it, I think, that so few people are even trying to take hold of this plan. Here's a wonderful plan, supposedly, which desperately needs applicants, but their response to it is in great doubt. Do not think for a moment that that is the situation in relation to God's plan of salvation. Quite the opposite is true. God has a wonderful plan for how his own righteousness would be exhibited at his initiative in his son on the cross by the shedding of his son's blood in a place of guilty sinners whom he's just talked about up to verse 20 And there is not one iota of doubt in God's mind as to who and how many individuals in the history of the world will be included in the benefits of that plan. The Scripture says God foreknew and designed from all eternity who would come to Christ. It's amazing that you can actually count among the haters of a particular word many sincere Christians who would say they love God's Word, but the word they hate is the word elect or election. It's there in the Bible, folks. You've got to deal with it. It's there in words like chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Christ from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as His sons in Jesus Christ according to the purpose of Don't fill in your will according to the purpose of his will. God not just had a plan. He saw through the whole execution of the plan. Romans 8.30 says those whom he predestined, he called and justified and glorified. And I could go on with a list as long as your arm of passages showing that grace means God initiates God stoops low. God appoints those who will participate. God awakens the dead soul. God gives faith. You may not like this, and you may have problems and objections in your mind, but I challenge you to find out whether it's scriptural or I'm selling you some bill of goods. 
the scripture says salvation was motivated by God, planned by God, carried out by God. And he is 100% responsible for this wonderful thing that he has done. Not only is he the source of grace, my second sub-point is he's the basis of our salvation, and that basis is in the cross of Jesus. In justifying sinful people, God didn't simply say, well, okay, all their crimes against me are written on the blackboard. I'll just erase certain ones because I feel like it. In order to erase anything written against him, against his holiness, God had to see justice be satisfied. And that's what the cross was about. There's a big word in here, and it uses the correct word translating the Greek in our particular English Standard Version translation, a very important word, propitiation, in verse 25. God put forward as a propitiation by the blood of Christ something to be received by faith. A satisfying offering, an offering that satisfied the requirements of divine justice. That was the death of Christ. God was propitiated by the death of his son. We believe when Jesus died on the cross and he gave that shout that some heard and recorded and he said in one word, finished. He wasn't just saying, thank goodness I'm about to die. This, this agonizing, terrible death is over with. We think he was saying something of eternal consequence The transaction of God with sin for those he would save is completed. It's done. Jesus died with that shout of victory. In Isaiah 53.10, there's a wonderful verse prophetically that we know pictures Christ. And it says that the one who would die this way would see the satisfaction of his soul. That he would even see those for whom he was dying. Jesus said in John's gospel when he prayed near the end of the gospel, Father, I have not lost one of those whom you gave to me. It's pretty evident that he wasn't just dealing with a maybe mass of faceless people who might or might not respond. He was dying for the souls of those who would trust in him according to the foreknowledge and plan of God. Folks, that That may cause you some logical problems in your thinking, but the mystery that is there should also give you wonder and adoration at such a God. And then thirdly, in a sub-point, we say that the means to obtain this wonderful salvation is by faith in Christ crucified. That's here, verse 26, that he is both just and the one who justifies that one who has faith in Jesus. Well, some people say, aha, finally, you've got my part. Okay, maybe God went 80% of the way and I only have to go 20%. But here's my part, faith, right? I do that. Well, Paul also wrote Ephesians 2.8. I learned it in Sunday school at least 50 years ago. By grace, you are saved through faith. And sorry to some of you, this faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of your works, 
lest any man should boast even about his faith. Faith is awakened in us by a new birth, by an awakening that comes of God. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John 3. This high teacher, this philosopher, he couldn't get it. Do I have to be born again? How in the world do I do that? That doesn't make any sense, said Nicodemus. And Jesus likened it to the blowing of the breeze, something capricious that a man doesn't regulate or control or even predict. He said, unless the Spirit has worked first, Nicodemus, to bring you alive, you'll never understand this. The new birth precedes faith. It doesn't follow from faith. It comes before faith. Very clear that Jesus was teaching that. Sure, someone says to me, well, doesn't the Bible say whosoever will may come to Christ? Indeed, it does. But let me ask you, who will come if they're dead? How many dead souls are going to come? Only the dead soul that's been awakened is going to come. And Jesus said it himself in John six forty four: No one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. Folks, this is not a doctrine imposed on the New Testament. The Reformed viewpoint on the salvation of God, the sovereignty of God and his grace says that grace has its source in God, that the death of Jesus is its basis, and faith is coming even from God by the Holy Spirit. Now, if this is something altogether new to you, I encourage you to examine your Bible. You may not have been taught this. A lot of people are not. Some people really dislike this teaching. I ask you to examine yourself. Are you trusting in a salvation in the least iota that depends on what you did or what you are doing now to save you? Don't lean on that confidence for a minute. Lean upon the grace of God, bringing forth Christ and opening this way of righteousness and opening you to have faith. You say, I can't figure it out, though. Why me and why not this person and so on? Look, our minds are never going to completely figure it out. That's not the point. The point is trusting God in his wonderful grace and trusting in another verse of Scripture that says, He who began his good work in you will bring that work to completion in the great day of Christ. God doesn't start saving people and then decide to stop or reverse his tracks. What he starts in salvation, he completes. And so our praises ought to declare to him. We don't understand the roots of this. Election is a mystery. God does it for his purposes. And we are left to declare, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Grace. God's grace, the only source, the only means, the only ground of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Our Father, I ask today that you might humble us before this truth. We have arguments, we have questions, we don't see every aspect of how that works, but may we be people who would accept what your word declares and give you praise and glory 
and honor. For truly from you and through you and unto you are all things. To you, our God, be glory forever and ever. Amen.